And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. It's only the second time it took me to actually get those words out, so that's a great start to uh, this episode of the show. Coming up, we have uh, me speaking better than I just did over the last few minutes. We have Linus Lugvist with an in-depth interview about his move to Chip Ganassi Racing. Uh, a little bit of kind of behind the scenes about how a, a driver move kind of comes about and as a kind of cross-section, um, it wasn't a bad driver move to choose in terms of going from being on the sideline after not being able to get a seat in IndyCar after winning the Indy Next Championship uh, and across the space of a month going from making your IndyCar debut to being in arguably the best team in the series. But before we get into that, I've got J.R. Hildebrand alongside me and listeners, you are finding this out at the same time as J.R. Hildebrand. Apple tells me, JR, that this is our 100th episode together. Is that which right? Which is quite cool. I wanted to get your live reaction to how you feel about that. That's shocking. I didn't. I wouldn't have thought 100. <laughs> seems like a lot. To context, contextualize that for you, that's four days and four hours of time that you've wasted <laughs> speaking to me. <laughs> and I still have the same <laughs> shitty laptop, so not much has changed cool. since the beginning. <laughs> and I still can't read out an intro, so we're, we're right back where we started, JR. I wanted to bring you on this week to do a little bit of news, uh, just because I thought it'd be a nice way to start the show before we dive into this Linus Lugbist interview. And uh, as the race reported uh, last week, or whenever it was, depending on when you listen to this podcast, uh, Andretti Autosport's long-running saga of what to do with its kind of car lineup, I guess you would call it, has been decided as they stick with three cars for next season. So we've got Kyle Kirkwood, Colton Herter and Marcus Ericsson. If you go back a couple of episodes uh, in this show, you'll find an interview with Marcus Ericsson about his move to Andretti, talking about some of the stuff that's going on there. But I wanted to get into that a little bit more with JR. He's got a lot of experience with different teams. Um, I guess you probably fall on the side of more dealing with teams where you've been the only driver as opposed to uh, a team shrinking from, from four to three cars. But I kind of wanted to get your insight and kind of how you feel this is going to impact the team because... I feel like for the previous 99 episodes of the show, uh, a lot of the time when we talk about Andretti, it's about their kind of either underperforming or suffering with some sort of issue. Um, execution's the word that quite often gets used, whether that's pit stop strategy, stuff that happens in races where they don't seem as consistent as the as the pace, you know, says where they should finish a, finish a race. Um and we've kind of seen this trend a little bit in IndyCar in, in recent years where we've seen a few teams uh, downsize. We've got outliers to that with Ganassi, obviously going to five cars next year. And we're going to get into that with Lena Slugfist a little bit later in the show. But we've seen Penske drop from from four cars to, to three and it obviously suited them well. They won the Indy 500 this year and won the championship with Will Power last year with that kind of three car lineup. So I guess to put it really simply, JR, the, the benefits versus... Um, negatives uh, I guess the the positives you're getting more data if you've got more cars on the track so that's a good thing 
the the negatives i guess are you're spreading more people across um you know you're kind of uh, i guess some would argue maybe weakening the team in the sense that you're spreading more people across more entries and you're not kind of focusing the best people on the best cars i i guess i would kind of characterize that so i guess let's let's kind of get your thoughts in terms of the context of this so if andretti's problems have mostly been kind of race execution things like pit stops and and strategy do you think shrink into three cars has the potential to be a big positive for them in the sense that they've got this opportunity now to move some of those people from the fourth entry over and, and kind of focus their their crew uh, and all of their personnel on on three cars as opposed to four yes i mean the short answer is definitely yes um you know that i think they they strike me as being in a position where and there's a couple of things that are going on here you know i guess in just from kind of a zoomed out point of view one is what you just mentioned which is there is just we we know this to be true for all the teams. This is this is kind of true across motorsports in the U.S. right now, but particularly in IndyCar, given the field, the size of the field, it's hard to find really top tier talent across the board across to to spread out across your entries. And so, really, just like not speaking specifically about Andretti, even just thinking more broadly about like the resources that you have and the human capital that you have at your disposal. It might just be that for that team in Indianapolis, that, you know, the, the pool of available talent is sort of tapped. And, and so you're making some compromises either. We've heard, I mean, we've heard this about Ganassi. So this is, that's a total sidebar that they're adding a car. And so you kind of have to, you have to ask that question a little bit of their situation. Like, okay, you guys are adding a car. I'll, I'll kind of get into that in a second. But if we talk about Andretti, we know there to be a pinch on, on really elite talent, you know, from an engineering perspective, from a management perspective, from a strategy, pers- you know, mechanics, all of these things. And so n- not to speak about that particular organization at all, just to kind of say, all right, the, the, the nuts and you know the base the basics here are that by downsizing you'll be able to pull together your best talent more effectively for the cars that are going to be competitive that that i think is that's for sure not an insignificant component to how this can be a big positive for for this team the other part of it and this is maybe speaking a little bit more specifically about this organization to your point, we've just seen them, we've just seen Andretti be a little all over the place compared to Penske and Ganassi. It, it has just appeared as though Penske and Ganassi have been more reliably sort of executing on their potential weekend to weekend. It's not to say that they're necessarily always great. Like they don't, you know, if if you just if you just took stock of where all three of those teams are, we'll, we'll kind of push Arrow McLaren to the side just because they're a little bit of a newcomer in this conversation. But kind of the the original big three in the series, if you just took FP1 at every event, you'd kind of say like Andretti's kind of right there, probably like it's, you know, so in terms of their potential showing up to race weekends, they've clearly shown they've, they've won race. They've been winning races through this span of the last few years when they have not really genuinely been in championship contention. So you kind of know that they have it, they have it in there. Um, whittling you know distilling everything down to three cars i think just it it will likely enable them to become more focused on the task at hand to um a, a lot resources 
as necessary in a different way where necessary over the course of the year. Like they'll have a little bit more sort of spare change to throw around in terms of like, okay, if, if Erickson's squad is having a particular type of issue, they'll be able to just put more attention on that. If Colton is like struggling with something in particular, or they've got some kind of thing going on behind the scenes, they'll just be able to, Michael will have more bandwidth. Like just everybody who's involved, Rob Edwards, I mean, everybody who's overseeing the whole thing will just have a little more bandwidth to become more focused on, on the little things that are going on, which that's the other part of it. Like we, we, we clearly know kind of watching all of this stuff from the outside and talking to everybody within the paddock. Sometimes it's, sometimes you can become a little tunnel vision to these things when you're in it and you're just having to show up at the racetrack weekend to weekend. But I think we can certainly recognize that you need to be able to do absolutely all the little things incredibly well to, to even be in the hunt at this point. I mean, that that's, that's definitely one of the more significant changes, I think over the IndyCar series over the last 10 years, like we're seeing a lot of the same teams and a lot of the same drivers go win championships. So there, there is a formula and, and you can kind of get around some of these things. But I think what certainly something that I've noticed is that as soon as you start making little mistakes, you're just, you're, you're out. Like there's no, there's no clawing it back at that point. You know, we've seen a lot of, there have been a lot of championship runs over the last, since we've been doing the pod, we'll just say like over the last, you know, three to five years generally that you sort of think, oh, Joseph or Colton or whoever, these guys that can go out and just, you know, they can go rip off Dixon. They, you know, they can go off and go out and rip off three or four race wins in a row if everything comes right. Sometimes they even go do that and still don't end up back in championship contention by the end of it. Um, and so I, I say all that basically just to say, I think this is the right move for Andretti to, to see if, to see if just by becoming a little more focused on the three cars that are going to be competitive cars, you know, that, and so that's the other piece of this, that the fourth car in Andretti's situation has, I guess I would say in the, with the exception of when they brought Hinch on kind of to replace Veach and, you know, that whole situation for like a year, Hinch, I know even just by his, his standards kind of didn't perform as, you know, and the team wasn't great that, you know, they were even more kind of, they've gotten better since then. I think you could say, Um, but for the most part, their fourth car has, I think we can just kind of call a spade a spade here, like has been a part of a budget equation, less a, a competition equation. Um, so that does end up just for the team for, and you, and you think about behind the scenes, you've got a bunch of people within the team that are having to oversee some component of every car, right? So you've got people that are looking after the parts. You've got people that are looking after, you've got a technical director who's overseeing the engineering and all the, having an, having a car there that you're not really getting getting anything out of it's not there for the sake of you know being competitive you know and 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 in the hunt for the championship and race wins and all those kinds of things um at a point that's just got to be a distraction you know and so whether it's a distraction weekend to weekend for your primary cars your primary engineers you know whatever but 
by removing that, it's just one less variable, basically. You know, like you can get sucked. I mean, I've been in situations where you get sucked into kind of like somebody could be so adamant about an engineer, a driver, or whatever can be so adamant about what they think about the car that you kind of say, I don't know. I mean, I don't feel that strongly about it. Maybe they're right, you know, and, and then it just like takes you down a rabbit hole. And, and, and this is not to talk about Devlin or, or whatever, but it's just the type of thing that a lot of times it just ends up creating more questions than answers, you know, in terms of the competitiveness for the team. And so um, for all those reasons, I think this is definitely the right move. It's an interesting one. You know, the the one one of the things that's totally external to all of this for next year from a competition point of view for these guys is just there is this kind of looming decision that has not yet been made in terms of how this charter system, franchise system, whatever you're going to call it, is going to work. It sounds to me as though that is going to, in some way, shape, or form, be put in place to dependent on kind of the championship standings at the end of next year. That's the only reason that I'm, that I find this a little surprising, I guess that they do this is because it, because we know that the team now has back financial backing to be able to stand this up. Um, You know, if, if they are downsizing to one down downsizing to three cars and we kind of, you can speak a little bit about this. You know, we kind of have heard rumblings of, you know, is there like a satellite car here somehow in the mix? If that was the case, I, I would I would just walk back everything I just said about this being a good idea. Like having having a fourth car as a satellite car is extra like not great in terms of all of those things that I just described. But, um, you know, there there will be, I think, de- particularly depending on how the charter system ends up actually looking. I think that structure is not, you know, totally defined or 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 decided on yet. But that could end up creating for some jockeying of entries and and that kind of stuff going into the next year. So anyway, those are that's my uh, download on all my various thoughts about Andretti downsizing to three cars. <laughs> for sure, I think I, I really like the I really like this whole thing to be honest. Um, for for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned and. Also, I'd just throw in there that the the driver lineup's really nicely balanced with Marcus coming in as well because we know how quick Col- Colton and, and Kyle are and what they're capable of. Who knows, maybe they've got the ability to become these kind of more consistent, rounded threats that the likes of Newgarden, Dixon, Pelot are when they're given the opportunity to do that within a team that is performing in in a way that is capable of that you know we we're quite happy to sit here and criticize Colton and Kyle for certain aspects of how they've raced or or their performances um in in recent years but we also have to kind of asterisk that a little bit with the the team they're in and there's obviously been some problems there so it's a difficult situation but I think with Marcus coming in we've we've got a a proven driver. We know his track record. We know how he performs at a top team. We've seen what he's capable of doing there. We also know that he is a driver who probably, you know, will will be trying his hardest to be on par with Colton and Kyle, but might not actually get to that level of pace immediately and, and, and hasn't necessarily demonstrated the amount of speed that those two have. But his racecraft and his ability to, to put races together has been much better than those two. So um, a really nice kind of balanced driver lineup in that sense. Yeah, I just wanted to add quickly there that I think that I think Marcus is 
the more I sort of look at the different lineups across the field, the more I think he's just a, a really excellent ad for this team, given the fact that they've still got two really young guys. Colton's been in the series for so long that we don't necessarily think of him in that category. <laughs> but I think yeah, I, I sort of look at the three of them and say, you know, I, I, I guess I sort of have the feeling that Kyle's, what Kyle has shown to be elite pace on street courses at road courses and street courses and Marcus being as good as he is with the experience that he's got, especially from an execution point of view, but, but even just, you know, he's been at Ganassi. He knows what a good car feels like on every oval track at this point. He's been able, he's those were the events where he was occasionally, he did kind of punch above his weight relative to Alex and Scott, you know, sometimes more often than not, depending on just the stretch through the year, um, having somebody who brings that level of, I mean, it reminds me of when we talked to Kyle, uh, you know, after he won Long Beach, that just when you have teammates that just go out and perform and know what they're talking about and, and, and then you get in this feedback loop with those guys of then you try what they've, what they say they like, and you go out and you like it also, it just creates this trust and kind of, it brings the whole, it, it like brings your level of sanity up by bringing the level of chaos within the team down. And so Marcus seems like this, you know, Andretti seems like a team that has had a higher degree of kind of chaos just in terms of weekend to weekend. Where are they at throughout a weekend? Where are they at is, are they, do they, do they end up qualifying in the top six and then none of them are finishing inside the top eight and just have all this kind of stuff that seems like what the hell is going on here? Um, that Marcus seems like just, uh, a, brings kind of a, a vibration level that will calm some of that down. So yeah, I definitely, and you get the feeling that he's an easy enough guy to get along with. Like, um, you know, that's, that's, I think he'll bring a little bit of the just lead by example kind of attitude to this squad with two young guys that I think will be receptive to that. Cause they're both ultimately Colton and Kyle are both just like good dudes. You know, they're just out there trying to, trying to do their thing. I think they are good teammates, um, particularly in the right situation. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm excited to see from this group. You know, it's a little bit like Rossi going to um, Aero McLaren, just in the sense that hard to know, like, how long will it take Marcus to kind of get up to speed? And you got to give him some time to figure that out and and whatever. But um, in a way, I feel like what he's really bringing to the table is that expertise on the oval side of things, um, you know, which which that frankly is that that translates a lot faster, mm-hmm. basically. So. I think yeah, that it'll, it'll definitely be interesting to watch. All three of their competitive cars last season had a worse average finish than average start, which did happen in IndyCar for some drivers. But I don't think there's any other team where they're you know so many of their competitive cars had that record. So there's definitely some work for Marcus to do. There's work for some for, for that team to do. But a lot of what we've talked about earlier in this episode with um, downsizing three cars, they've got the potential to to fix a lot of those issues and. And be a lot more competitive so it's going to be interesting to see let me re-nose this slightly jr just lastly before we head to linus and, and kind of come to that ganassi setup and 
So we've told Andretti that it's a good thing for them to downsize to, to three cars from four and Ganassi are going in the complete opposite direction and expanding to, to five cars. So what, how, how much of their competitiveness kind of makes this easier? And let me kind of phrase that a little bit better. Ganassi are in a totally different situ- situation to Andretti where they've just won the championship and they've got Scott Dixon and Alex Below delivering the results that they know they're they're going to need. They've got Marcus Armstrong, a, a strong rookie who's won Rookie of the Year this year. And suddenly the opportunity to sign last year's Indian next champion, Linus Lundqvist, pops up as well. And you think, yeah, I think everyone is uh, suspecting that, that Kiffin Simpson's bringing a pretty significant budget to that team and he's someone that they've taken on to kind of fulfil that role and probably someone they're not expecting uh, a lot from. So give the listeners a bit of insight in that sense. What do we think about this decision to expand? Because for me, it's obviously not as critical as Andretti's situation because they're already doing all of the things that we expect Andretti to be doing. They're, they're winning the championships, they're winning the races and they've got two, now they've got Pelot, they've got two um, you know, solid drivers there who are capable of winning championships and winning races. So it's almost like if they can afford to have someone like Kiffin, it might turn out to be good anyway, that they can afford to take a risk on someone like him in order to fulfil bringing some young guys into the team and, and basically evaluating them even maybe over the next year or, or two to see if they're someone that they're you know, potentially going to be the next Alex or or Scott. And if they're not, they can be moved on and replaced and and that's a kind of conveyor belt of talent. And as long as the performances don't take a hit by having so many cars and having spread so, so thin, then it's all right at the end of the day. Yeah, I guess there's a little bit to unpack about the whole thing. You know, the the first thing I think that that just comes to mind is, well, the the concern that you have to have is is more of what Scott Dixon felt like he was going through, and I think and and I think was you know was going through where you know he felt like he was getting kind of shortchanged in terms of he had one fewer crew member on the nine car than the other cars had, and all this kind of stuff. So it does like the first the first thing just relative to the conversation that we we're having about Andretti that does come to mind that seems kind of hard to argue with or hard to get around is you know they're it's just tight on staff so so that seems like kind of a a difficult barrier to get around or a difficult sort of set of constraints to to find like a good workaround for ganassi you know they have the multi-car imsa program in-house they've got other stuff going on so Maybe that's, I think, you know, they have other personnel to pull from other things to go do, to go do this, but you know, that's, that's good for running an extra car at Indy. That doesn't really suffice as a long-term strategy, you know, and, and running Indy car over the course of the, you know, the entire season, like that's, you know, you're going to have like, you're going to end up kind of a weird revolving door of people and, and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of worry for even their contenders i worry for scott dixon in particular because he seems like this has already happened um at one point for him and and at some stage you have to kind of think that you know scott scott's kind of needs when you've got alex Pillow on the same team like he needs everything that he needs everything that anybody can give him to to be able to be right there i mean you saw at the end of the season this past year that he's still got the goods you know but like I mentioned earlier, just the whole level is coming up. So anything that's not kind of perfect or or not perfectly arranged or organized on your behalf or whatever, it's it's just gonna cost you at some point. Like that's gonna that's gonna be a thorn in your side at some point during the season. And 
it's so competitive that you just can't really afford to have those. So I guess that's that's the concern in this scenario. If they manage to avoid that being an issue, which you got to feel like they think they can, and maybe the and 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 it's certainly possible in the right conditions to do that. Um, ultimately, this is a business, so it comes down to you know, like if you're if you can manage to like overpay people to be on your team instead of somebody else's, you can probably get the right number of the right guys. Like that's, that's also a reality of the sport and, and just the business of it. My guess is that this is just an absolute necessity for them to do basically to make the business of the rest of the championship contending cars that they have make any sense. JR, thanks so much for your insight. It's been fantastic. And congratulations, commiserations for a hundred episodes according to Apple of the Race <laughs> IndyCar podcast. I feel like at this point, I should publicly thank you and apologize to you for your many long prisoner <laughs> hours spent on this podcast with me. So thank you very much. Without a shadow of a doubt, I've enjoyed every minute of it. So Same uh, here, Jack. Yeah, we're going to continue doing Same it. Same here, buddy. Yeah. So without further ado, JR, I'll let you go. And I'm going to head over and speak to Linus Lugvist about his big move to Chip Ganassi Racing. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? (laughs) You mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Let's get into it. I guess I wanted to start with... You know, thinking back to when you won the the Indy Next Championship and then not quite being able to to get the Indy car seat, everything that happened there, and you spent almost a, a whole season, you know, kind of on the on the sideline there, not knowing kind of 
you know, what was going to happen. Um, you were kind of driver coaching for, for HMD and Indy Lights, trying to make sure you were kind of staying in the paddock and, and speaking to team bosses and keeping your face, you know, kind of known um, around the paddock. And then within the space of a month, you obviously got the call up to, to Maya Shank to, to replace Simon Paginot there. And then within that month, you were driving for the team that ended up winning the championship in IndyCar. So you've gone from the sideline to the to what most people would describe as the best team in IndyCar. So uh, I guess just reflect a little bit on that journey and how quickly your life kind of totally did a, a U-turn, in that, especially in terms of your career anyway, you know, things really, really, uh, you know, turning around for you there. Absolutely. And I would say not only career-wise, but life-wise, because you, mm. not only for me, but my family and everybody that that's helped me as well, because you dedicate so much time and energy and you, you dedicate your whole life to this one goal to, to make it. Um, and like you said, the, after winning the, the championship, the, the NNX championship, the, the hope for them was to be on the grid full time this year. That didn't happen. And then I think I said to you last time as well, but I was kind of put in a position that either I stay at home and just hope that, you know, the, the call will come up and say that, Hey, we have a seat, go race. But I realized that that's not really going to happen. So I told myself, all right, I'm going to do everything I can to you know, create an opportunity for myself or at least be ready if there's an opportunity. So, um, yeah, I uh, I was a coach for better part of the year, which, you know, kept me at the races because that was the, the biggest thing for me that I still wanted to run into these, you know, team bosses and team principals and remind them that, um, you know, I'm, I'm still around, that if something pops up, then... I'll be the first guy that, that they call. Um, and I would like to believe that if I hadn't have done that, then the opportunity with Mayshank Racing wouldn't have presented itself. And mm. without that, obviously, I would not be in the position of, of where I am because, you know, that call came from from Mike Shank, I think like four or five days before before the, the Nashville race weekend. So it all happened very, very quickly. And then after the Nashville weekend, then obviously people that I've been hassling and, and, and calling for two, two and a half years time, all of a sudden they were calling me, which was a, a, a pretty nice feeling. Um, and then, um, <laughs> you know, a couple of weeks later, then uh, was the, like you said, uh, what many would describe and including myself, the, the best team in IndyCar. Um, <laughs> so yeah, my life definitely changed over, over those last couple of weeks, um, the race that we did. For sure. You must know of other Indian X drivers, either ones that you know directly or ones that you've seen in the past who, who haven't made it after going through a, a situation like you went through where you've not managed to, to get on the grid. Obviously, in that situation, you lose quite a lot of momentum, don't you, with the, the teams that you're speaking to. And once you've been kind of, you know, on the sideline and you've not been racing, it's it's sometimes even more difficult for you to get a seat because there's other drivers then kind of creating headlines and and ones that are racing full time that are able to kind of put themselves in the in the shot window a bit more. So uh, I'm, I'm guessing you know a few drivers from the past who who haven't been able to do what you've done and, and turn that into a into an IndyCar seat. So d- did you have a backup plan or did you even consider what not being an IndyCar you know might look like for you because. I guess whereas some drivers maybe have dreamed of racing in IndyCar for their whole lives, obviously you've been a big fan of IndyCar for a long time. But I think when you came to the US in in 2020, it was that that was when things kind of really uh, became obvious to you that you were you know going to push for an IndyCar seat and the scholarship was going to be able to to help get you to that point. But yeah, I guess I'm, I'm just curious if you if you ever had a backup plan or if you if you had ever thought about what might happen if you didn't make it to IndyCar in in the next year or so after you'd won the Indy Next Championship. Yeah, no, uh, 
no backup plan uh, and i was scared <laughs> and i was petrified honestly if you know <laughs> what would happen if they didn't, this didn't work out um mm. but i also believe that you know when when we won the championship you know we we were in a position where we didn't have a seat and like you said it's difficult being on the sideline when everybody else is you know creating headlines and you know winning races and i know that at the end of the year there's going to be a new champion and you're very mm. quickly forgotten in this uh, in this world and that's why it was so important to me to still be out there and still talking to to these people because all of the feedback that i got from the team you know the teams that i was speaking with was that you know we would love to have you but you know at the end of the day it's a business and if you know the the financial and the business side doesn't come together then you're not going to be in it uh, and I realized that as well. So it was just about, you know, waiting for that right opportunity and, and keeping my name in the pot. So if there were, you know, um, an availability, then, you know, the, the, at least consider me. Um, and then when I did get the, the chance to prove myself as well in, 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 in IndyCar, because I think that's a big, big change is that so, sure, you won races and championships in the lower series, but can you actually be good and fast in the highest level? And I think once we showed that, that we have the speed, people are like, okay, well, you know, the, the kid's actually pretty good, even, even in an IndyCar. And um, <laughs> I think that was the, the big switch. And um, I think that hopefully, at least, I'd like to think that that's kind of what, what convinced Chip and Mike to, to say that, okay, let's give this, uh, this kid a, a call, see what he says. <laughs> all right let's put let's put you on the spot then with with chip and and how everything kind of played out there i know you can't go into too much detail but tell us a little bit about how the the whole ganassi move came about obviously you know if, if we're if we're looking at this from like the listener's point of view we saw you get the chance with with maya shank and i guess people probably thought well if he does a good job here he might be able to persuade maya shank to give him a seat next year and i don't think many people really saw ganassi come in from kind of behind the scenes a little bit to to make a move on you i know there were other teams who were really interested in you as well after after what you were able to achieve in the in the races that you did but in in as much detail as you're allowed to tell us a little bit about how that all kind of, kind of came about and 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 what happened there yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit surprised too. Um, <laughs> because I think, and especially as a as a young driver, like you have a team like Chip Ganassi Racing, it's almost a bit of a unicorn in the terms of like, you hear so many stories about it and you watch it from afar, but you can never really get up close and maybe, you know, to touch it. Um, but, you know, I've, I've known Michael for, for quite some time and we spoke at length at, over across two years. I've kind of chased him around and to, you know, maybe we can look at doing something together. So we have a, a good relationship um, and we met many times and actually spoke about maybe doing something for this year, but it never came together. Um, and obviously we kept in touch throughout the year, sat down. Um, and like I said, you know, after Nashville, the whole thing changed a little bit where, you know, it went from me always calling them to them actually reaching out to me saying that, Hey, you know, but what are your plans for next year? Do you have anything decided? <laughs> Which I didn't at the point or, or at that time. Um, and obviously after that, it kind of progressed and we, we talked a little bit more into making this a reality. Uh, but yeah, I was um, not surprised, but, you know, making it into a reality rather than speaking about making something happen uh was was incredible um and for me it was like yeah i know where where i want to go i know where i want to be um <laughs> although i will say you know i will always be deeply thankful to um to mike and jim uh, at shank 
for for giving me the opportunity because without that I wouldn't have been in in this position at all. So mm-hmm. um, you know I've I really enjoy the the races that I did together with them, but uh, I look forward to this new chapter with with Chip Ganassi Racing and hopefully many wins and even championships in the future. Yeah, I know you've kind of done a lot of the work across your career by yourself or with a small group of like people from Sweden and some of your friends. And, um, you know, you've, it, you're not one of these people who, who has a, a massive back in and, and has, you know, kind of 50 people in an office kind of doing your, doing your stuff for you. And a, a lot of what you've been able to do in, in, in getting to where you are now has been through your own efforts and kind of banging doors down. And uh, like you said, you know, keeping relationships with these, these team bosses and, and stuff like that. But what was that period like before you signed for Ganassi? Because, I imagine once the piece of paper came through from Ganassi, uh, or the email came through, maybe these days that um, you know it was pretty, it was pretty clear at that point. You didn't have much of a decision to make given the the kind of stature of, of of Ganassi and stuff like that. But the the part before that, did you have some advice? Did you have you know a manager helping you with all that kind of stuff, or did you kind of keep it the same as you've kind of done all the way through, where you've kind of kept a, a small group kind of helping you out and, and made the kind of big decisions on your own? Yeah, I mean, the decisions uh, are always going to be uh, on my own. You know, I'm going to have to have the last say in where I want to go. Uh, yeah. But I do work with, with a management company, Sports Management Network, network um, that they also work with, I think, Kirkwood and McLaughlin. So mm-hmm. they deal. Um, so they help me out in negotiations. Uh, but in terms of, you know, relations and, you know, getting introduced to teams, etc. We I did very much that work myself. But I think it's good that when it comes down to the negotiation parts, so basically it was like, okay, we want to make something happen. And then usually I bring the the third or the, my manager kind of into the picture a little bit more and like, mm. okay, you know, make me the best, um, the best contract here and make it happen. Um, mm. And I think that that's been very good um, so far, at least. Uh, I mean, this is our first contract that we landed and it was <laughs> a pretty good one. Yeah. Well, I, I guess you've kind of gone into every kind of year of your racing at least recently anyway over the past few years kind of not knowing whether you'd have the budget to finish the year or or if you'd been able to to kind of get through so I guess there must have been some some pretty crazy points over the past at least kind of four years maybe even longer where you've kind of had to start a year without knowing you know whether you're going to finish it and I, I guess along the way you've had to do some some pretty crazy things to try and keep in a seat and, and, and keep your, you know, kind of championships going. So uh, I guess to, to be in that position where you are now is uh, you must be feeling a lot better. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, I don't think a single season throughout my career, I've, I've known that I was actually going to be able to finish it mm. uh, because you've always had to kind of, you know, chase a little bit more money to, to make sure that you can actually finish the year. Um, and, in a funny way, because it, you know, a lot of the seasons that I've actually finished has been because of the team, because we've been in a, a in a position that we've either led or at least fought for the championship. And then mm-hmm. usually racing teams they want to win the racers. So if they have a driver that's fighting for the championship, they say, "All right, well, we're gonna let you continue and hopefully you can win it." Um, and that's usually how you know my years has been. Um, and funnily enough, I think it almost prepared me a little bit for the Nashville and the uh, the opportunities that I had with Shank because I I knew what was at at stake going into that. Um, mm. Because if I did well, then I knew that I'd done myself a huge favor. But if I didn't perform those weekends, then I knew that that 
potentially could have been the end of my career because you're lucky if you get you know one of these opportunities usually there are no second opportunities so i knew that this was my one time to kind of show what what i had and in a funny way almost my my whole career prepared me for that moment because you've always had to perform every single weekend because otherwise you might not be racing the next one. Mm-hmm. And it was very much the similar, you know, this opportunity that I had to, to do the IndyCar races. So it wasn't that much of a difference for me. Um, and like I said, in, in a funny way, it, it almost worked out to, to my favor to have that, um, to be in that position throughout my career that you've always had to perform every single weekend. Mm. It's kind of why I was asking you about whether you're having much help with your kind of decision making because I guess there's quite a lot of drivers out there, not all of them, but quite a lot of them out there who um, maybe the decision of what team to choose or, or what championship to go into is is not like the be all and end all of their career where if they make the wrong decision, then they can bounce back. They'll have other opportunities where I don't think you've really had that in your junior career. You've kind of had to always kind of make the right decision and, and if you don't make the right decision then like you said you know that could mean you're not racing the next weekend or or the next season so uh, I guess the I, I guess you've kind of learned to deal with that um that level of pressure and it's helped you in your in your racing because you you kind of I don't want to say you become numb to it because obviously that pressure is always there and I, I know you put a lot of pressure on yourself to to perform and stuff like that but if, if you were just if you were a driver who was just thrust into that situation of Maya Shank without having the career that you've had and were, were put under that level of pressure I'm sure a lot of drivers would struggle to deal with that in a kind of one-off scenario whereas you were obviously well prepared for it yeah uh, I'd like to think so at least um and as well <laughs> you know I told myself that you know this this year is Sure, we're going to spend a lot of a lot of time on the sideline. But if there's an opportunity that were to come up, I want to stay ready. So you know, I stayed ready physically, and you know, I I tried to prepare as much as I possibly could. And obviously, I did two tests throughout the year as well, with one with Rayall at Texas and one with Carpenter at Sebring. So I had some form of seat time um, because that was important to me as well to at least have some you know amount of laps because of. Before that, you know, the last race that I did was at Laguna, which was, you know, eight months or nine months, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big break of not really being in, in a car. So at least I had a couple of laps. So if the opportunity were to come up, then I was somewhat prepared, obviously far from ideal, but at least I knew that I could kind of show what, what I could do, um, which I think worked out in the end. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about next year then. Uh, I'm sure you're very excited about it. You've already had a, a couple of tests with with Ganassi and uh, kind of settling in. And I know you've stayed behind a little bit later into the off season than, than maybe some drivers would to try and get yourself up to speed. I'm kind of interested in how you're approaching this year on the kind of continuing the theme of, of pressure because you're, you're going into this year with a, a multi-year deal. Um, the, the first year of your career, I reckon, based off of what you were just saying there, where you're not worrying mm-hmm. about you're not worrying about finishing um, or whether you're going to be racing the next weekend. You're, you're kind of set for, for the year. So that must mean there's a lot of pressure off in that sense that you're not kind of fighting that every week. But also you've got now the the added pressure of being the teammate of a six-time champion and the reigning champion in the series. So what does that trade-off kind of look like for you? And how, how do you kind of feel going into the team in that sense that you've got this kind of weight off your shoulders a little bit that you you've 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 finally got a full-time seat and it's in the best team in the series but also the the expectations are going to be high now because of the the level of driver that you're kind of sharing with yeah exactly like i said you know there's a certain weight off my shoulders knowing where i'm going to be for for the next few years but there's obviously an added weight that comes with being a chip ganassi racing driver i mean just look at 
this season, for example, I mean, the bar has been set. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that you're going up against, you know, you know the, the best drivers in, in the whole field as your teammates. But for me, I just see it as an opportunity because firstly, I am a rookie. Um, and this is probably the best environment ever to learn from um having these teammates and having not only the drivers but the engineers and the you know the the level that the whole team is operating on it's it's so high higher than i've ever seen um and to me that's extremely motivating because you see the engineers and the mechanics and the crew chiefs they put in so much effort that you want to put in you know even more effort uh, and, and kind of pay it back to them uh which is uh, which is extremely cool and as well like from a driver point of view to have Scott Dixon and Alex Pillow as my teammates, it's, it's incredible. You know, already I was with the team at Portland at Laguna, um, kind of watching uh, from the inside, seeing how they operate and how they work. And I think I made, I don't know, probably more notes that I've done throughout my career over those, <laughs> over those two weekends and just, um, watching and observing how they, how they work and operate. So yeah, I'm incredible, incredibly excited to, um, to share the team with them next year. What was it like going into Turn One at Indy at the at the Oval there in the test for the first time? I guess we were talking a little bit off air, not to uh, um, kind of uh, set this up for the listeners, but we were talking off air about how um, obviously uh, you know it's settling in for you, moving into Ganassi and being part of that team. But you know, not only was it the, your first test there, so everything kind of you know became real for you with the with the Ganassi test, but also it was your first time on the Oval in an Indy car. So <laughs> two pinch me <laughs> two two pinch me moments in one. So what was that like? T- t- talk us through that. <laughs> yeah, very much like that. Um, it was still one of the craziest days of my life, I think, because it meant so much <laughs> in so many ways. Because firstly, it was my my first outing uh, for Chip Ganassi Racing, and even to have that moment is uh, you know it's it's such a big. Uh, big time in my in my career but then to do it at the speedway and my first time around the the speedway as well uh is uh, is incredible so yeah it was a double uh double happiness in in, <laughs> in that sense but it was incredible i still remember like my first couple of laps um uh doing the rop and obviously you have the the stages where you have to stay within a, a certain speed to to get through um i still remember like my first two laps i felt Jesus Christ, this is so fast. And then I saw my average speed was like 189. And I knew that I had to get like to 210 to even pass like the first stage. And then realizing like say on qualifying day with the average speed is like 230 or 233, whatever they do. It's, it was, yeah, pretty crazy. Uh, those first couple of laps, but then you get a little bit more used to it. And at the end of the day, you were able to do it, you know, flat and quite comfortably. So, but yeah, those first couple of laps, um, turn one looks incredibly tight because you don't see an exit. You just see a wall approaching. So yeah, it took a little bit of time to the game, to get used to the speeds. That's for sure. What's it going to mean to you to race in the 500? Obviously, there's people like uh, Kenny Brack and obviously a lot more recently Marcus Ericsson to kind of look up to on on your side. But I know it's a race you've watched for a long time anyway. And, um, you know, I, I guess what, what are you kind of expecting that to be like from a, a perspective of, uh, I guess you've been before and you've you've done the event, but not as a driver, obviously, and not with the the amount of media and events and all of that kind of stuff that goes with the the, the, the extra practice and how much uh, track time you get and stuff like that. So uh, I guess just, you know, knowing it's the Indy 500, right? It's the biggest, one of the biggest races in the world. What what are you kind of thinking heading towards that? Yeah. Um, 
like I said, I've been watching that race for a long time. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to attend uh, the last few years uh, at the race. And even as a, as a spectator, it is one of the coolest things that I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> so I don't know what to expect as a, as a driver going into the race. Obviously, I've spoken to some of them and um but at the same time i don't want to have expectations of what to feel or what what it's going to be like because i know that this is you know extremely few people get to experience what it's like to be a driver at the indianapolis 500 so to to be fortunate enough to experience it i want to go in basically with you know a, a blank mind and just you know experience the raw emotions uh of, of what it's like then I know myself as well because I'm a competitor. I love to win. That's what I'm here to do. So a lot of focus is going to go towards that. But I'm going to try to put aside a little bit of emotion to just, you know, enjoy the spectacle that the uh, that the race actually is. For sure. Tell us a little bit about what your kind of off-season looks like now then. And, and from a... From a listener's perspective and from my perspective, I've not been in a I've not been a Chip Ganassi racing driver, sadly. But luckily for Chip, <laughs> look, luckily for Chip Ganassi, um, tell us a little bit about how how much you can do in an off season. Because I guess at least from from what I understand, you know, you you might want to go in and speak to your engineers and get to them get to know them a little bit bit better and explain to them kind of like what you like from the car, what what kind of setup you like, or how you like the car to perform. But then things like that can't really be changed in the factory and you'll you won't really know things like that until you actually get out and and test on track so is it a case of more like team bonding and and just kind of getting to know everybody and really settling in and making sure you know where everything is and just kind of silly things like that or do you feel like there is quite a lot you can achieve as a driver in terms of like being prepared for how the car is going to be set up how you're going to perform and and how the on-track things are going to are going to kind of play out yeah i think both and i think this will be Say, for example, I think me and maybe Scott Dixon's off-seasons looks a little bit di- different because, you know, mm. he he knows already everything, um, yeah. basically. But to me, everything is very new. So, um, mm. you know, even the, the simples, simplest of, of things um, are still new to me and the team. So what I try to focus now, obviously, is anything performance related that we can we push to the max but a lot of it is honestly like going back to school for me like they <laughs> like they almost host like some seminars or like uh lectures for me to go through and it's basic <laughs> stuff like what what kind of system they use when we look through data or mm-hmm. you know the feedback papers whatever it might might it or it might be it's it's good for me to get comfortable with it now. So I'm not trying to get comfortable with it at the track because when we're at the track, we're trying to streamline anything that we can. Um, so a lot of that process is is being done now. And like I said, I think a lot of it as well is, is personally, at least, I'd like to spend as much time as I can basically with the team. Uh, firstly, mm-hmm. because I enjoy it. And secondly, as well, there's a lot of new faces for me to, to learn um, mm-hmm. and uh, just trying to get myself you know, uh, being more and more included within the team and understand how they operate, what they like, what they don't like, etc. cetera. Um, you know, I was on coffee duty for, for Laguna, for example. So I learned what everybody <laughs> wanted for coffee. So you know, <laughs> taking the next steps and that as well. So it's, uh, it's the whole process of just being, uh, you know, incorporated and included within the team and see how they all work. 
I know Alex Polo likes his coffee, so I hope you got his yeah. order right and you you got everything perfect there. Because if you didn't, then you might be on the on the naughty step with that one. <laughs> I know, I know. You have to uh, tread carefully around that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, in terms of how you approach a season, obviously next year is a, a big year for you. Do you have set targets? Um, I know some drivers like to say. I want to finish this position in the championship. I want to win this number of races. I want this many pole positions. I want this many podiums. And I know there's some drivers out there who really don't like to to do any of that sort of thing and just like to focus on, um, you know, certain goals that aren't necessarily kind of number driven or, or stat driven. Kind of where where are you at at this point? And um, you know, what would what would next season look like for you in terms of a, a good season? What would you if we can kind of fast forward to the end of next season and we finish the year and you've achieved something, what would that be to to really have you happy with your performance? Uh, win the championship. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Yeah, there we well, go. I say half jokingly, but at the same time, that's that's why we're here. And mm-hmm. you don't you don't go into a team like Chip Ganassi Racing with expectations any anything below it. Mm-hmm. But you have to take into consideration that you know you're going up against you know some of the best drivers in the world and it is your first full season so there's going to be a lot of learning to do um and i realized that and the the target is not to win every single race of the year because we know that we can't do that but uh, i'm not a big fan of setting hard targets like a number say that we have to finish this position um i think that the goal for me is to maximize every single weekend whatever you know, the speed that I have that weekend, whatever the car is, you know, if I'm only fast enough to be 10th, then, you know, I'm going to try to make sure that I'm at least 10th that weekend or, you know, fight to be ninth at least. Um, so that's, that's more my approach into, into, into next year's make sure that we maximize every single weekend. Um, and obviously a lot of learning, um, and, and trying to, trying to learn from, from my teammates, especially and see what they do so well. Um, but like I said, at the end of the day, I'm a competitor. I'm here to win. So if we have a chance and we have the speed to, to win a race or two, then we're definitely going to go for it. Awesome. Well, Lena, thanks so much for joining us on the pod. Thanks as always for being so candid and, and open about your experiences. And it, it always uh, makes for a great interview. So thanks for joining us. Uh, we wish you all the best for next season. Uh, hopefully we'll speak to you before the season starts. But if we don't, let's hope for a, a strong start in, in St. Pete. Thank you. I appreciate that. It was a pleasure speaking to you, Jack. Hopefully you enjoyed that candid interview with Lena Sungfest. Nice to get some behind the scenes kind of discussion on driver contracts. Not always easy for them to to talk about on the record, but nice that Linus gave us a little bit of insight into what had happened with him uh, as he joined Ganassi and uh, what had happened while he was kind of sat on the sidelines a little bit. Uh, he's all, all, definitely an interesting character and his career history is very interesting. You can go back through our back catalogue and listen to more interviews with Linus where he talks about his background. We, we had him on when he was in... Indy Lights as it was then, now Indy Next. And uh, yeah, we've had him on while he was um, kind of breaking through with with Maya Shanka at the end of the, the 2023 season. So definitely go and check those episodes out. A bit of news for you. We've got an episode coming up, which we're calling a tech special. Uh, that'll be all things um, aero, setup. Um, a lot of people ask about dampers. That's always the biggest topic in 
in IndyCar when it comes to, to anything mechanical, tech, that sort of thing. Tech's just the broad kind of term we're, we're using for it, but we want your questions. So you can email us, podcasts at the-race.com, or you can send us a voice note where your voice will be featured on the show. So you can put your question in voice form and email that to us. You can also uh, use social media. Obviously, JR and, and I are on social media or uh, the race as well. You can send your questions on any of those platforms. Probably best to, to send them to our email. But if you do prefer social media, you can do that. We'll have a very special guest with us who is an expert on all things IndyCar tech, aero, etc., etc. We'll reveal that guest a little bit closer to the time. But we're definitely interested in seeing what you guys come up with and what questions you want to ask. We've actually already had some come in from some some people who maybe got a sneak preview that the uh, tech episode was was coming up um, and predicted it or uh, just so happened to send tech questions in uh, around the time we were planning a tech special. So very interesting on that side. Definitely get your questions in. We'll do our best to get them answered uh, by uh, someone who's now independent and will be able to answer lots of different questions it's not necessarily worked for every team in the IndyCar paddock but definitely has a good working knowledge of of what's going on inside the paddock so uh, they'll be there to answer your questions make sure you leave us a review on Spotify or Apple or wherever you're listening to the podcast if you enjoy it it means a lot to us and helps with uh, pushing the podcast up the charts and things like that so that's always handy we really appreciate it and make sure you check out the-race.com for all your IndyCar news features and analysis and check out our back catalogue where we've got plenty of episodes. Uh, one of our most recent interview episodes with Marcus Ericsson on his move to Andretti. Marcus is always a good interview, so that was uh, a lot of fun. Um, so go back and check some out those episodes. That's all for this week's episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.